Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. I'm back. I am back after a two-week vacation with the fam uh, in France. We went to France this year and it was super fun. It was an excellent, excellent trip. Uh, not only did we have just fun with the family, but we also, you know, you sprinkle in plenty of cultural enrichment, not just for the children, but for yourself. And you come home after a trip like that, kind of thinking deeper and ideally feeling better connected to the to the family, to your spouse. I missed all of you. I'm not going to lie when I'm not doing the show, especially when it's a newsy week. I have that pull like, oh, oh, what else? Oh, the submarine. What happened to it? Submersible. That was sad. Um. But there was a lot of news to cover, and I, I'm going to get to a lot of it in, in sort of a larger context here this morning. I want to start with this. One of the best things about traveling with your family is two weeks solid of your core fam together all day, every day. Now, don't underestimate that. When else do you get to do that, right? During school and work, you're busy. Your children are busy. You are not with each other all day long. If you're lucky, you get your family dinner together and maybe your family breakfast. But this is a time in which our family really found ourselves able to talk about everything, um, in which we were refamiliarizing ourselves with everything about each other. And Doug and I, and think about it, you're having three meals a day with your kids, you're traveling with your kids, you're seeing sites with your kids, you're talking about random things with your kids. And yes, there can be minor skirmishes and so on, but for the most part, we all got along and we wound up learning things about each child that I did not know going into the trip. In some cases, they revealed concerns that we hadn't been aware of or social dynamics that were on their minds. Or we just had the opportunity to share stories with each other, you know, some life lessons here or there and so on. So my advice coming out of this is take a family vacation if you can. Don't bring other kids to entertain your kids. I know it's easier on you as the adults in some ways, but you, you spend the time with them. Put in the effort. You won't be sorry. I'm telling you, it got so good and we got so close. I was sad to leave France, but it was more about leaving that dynamic than leaving France. You know, I was happy to return to the show, return to America, all the conveniences that we have here, snacks. They don't snack in France. I miss my snacks. Um, in any event, just remember that. Put in the time with the family. Don't bring another kid. You, you entertain them. You put in the time. We went all around France, saw the Eiffel Tower in Paris, saw the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. That was amazing. I actually got the chills. I'd seen the Mona Lisa before, but we got up close and personal. I actually got the chills. It's great when something like great art can do that to you. Did you know that at the top of the Eiffel Tower, by the way, there's a tiny little apartment that Gustave Eiffel built for himself? I didn't know. I'd never been up to the top of the Eiffel. Look at this. I took a picture. This is supposed to be uh, Gustave Eiffel there on the right. Thomas Edison there on the left and Eiffel's daughter standing behind them. Apparently, this actually happened. Edison visited Eiffel in the top of the tower in his little apartment. Two of the world's greatest visionaries sitting up there on top of the world discussing God knows what right? It's 81 stories up. Um, and this is back, you know, a hundred years. I just can't like fathom how that must have gone. Uh, we went to Provence where we rented e-bikes. We rode everywhere. That was amazing. In retrospect, it was probably dangerous to put our nine-year-old on one of those things to let him go 40 kilometers an hour. <laughs> but thank God we escaped unscathed. The entire place seemed like one big bike trail. We pulled over for a bit to smell here. You can see and touch the lavender in the blossoming, expansive fields of purple. Uh, now's the time to do that in France. And it was super nice to do something with no point other than 
sensory enjoyment, the smell, the visual, all of it, the feel of the lavender. It was just beautiful. The highlight of the e-bikes was this right here, the cherries on the cherry trees. These were the freshest, ripest, most delicious cherries any of us had ever eaten. We could hardly stop ourselves. And by the way, when you get it fresh off the tree like that, right off the the vine, you know, so to speak, it's like it looks nothing like and tastes nothing like what you would get in the grocery store. What we get in the grocery store when it comes to cherries is like a Frankenstein version of what you get the closer you can get to the OG which is a reminder of how better things are fresh from the garden or the farm, which means we all have to grow a garden. Now we have to plant cherry trees. I'm sorry, but we have to do it. Uh, We ended the trip at Saint-Tropez, where the views around our hotel, I took a little video for you, um, of the Mediterranean, the French countryside, the hotel gardens, which you can see here in this video, were out of this world. Just absolutely serene. Believe it or not, in uh, Saint-Tropez, we ran into entrepreneur and CEO Grant Cardone. I spoke at an event of his in Vegas a couple months back. Remember when we were in Vegas with the show? And we enjoyed a day with his family and his friends on the sea and then out to lunch here. Uh, and I'll get to more of what we saw on the beaches of Saint-Tropez and elsewhere in France a little later. Let's just say they're not so big a fan of clothing. <laughs> a lot of nudity. And it's always the unattractive ones, isn't it? It's always, right? Abby's saying yes. It's like, it's never like the, I don't know, pick your favorite, whatever, Jennifer Lawrence. It's not Jennifer Lawrence. No, it's old, like 78-year-old fat men letting it all hang out. And I got an up-close and personal experience with one of them, which I will tell you about in a minute. But right now, it's the beaches, not of Saint-Tropez, but of Normandy that I want to talk to you about. That's where we began the trip. And we were there nearly 79 years to the day from the D-Day invasion, the site of some of the greatest acts of heroism the world has ever seen. Now, we visited Pont d'Arc. That's how you're supposed to pronounce it. It looks like Pointe d'Arc, Pont d'Arc, in Omaha Beach. And we walked amidst the enormous bomb craters. You had to see these things. They were everywhere, huge craters in the land. Here's an oversight aerial view from the internet. But, you know, we were in the midst of all these. And at first, you don't know what they are. Those are our bombs. The bomb craters that our allied planes created as they tried to provide air cover for our guys storming the beaches down below. We stood on the sands of those very beaches and our kids uh, drew tributes to the fallen in the sand, which I'm showing here for the YouTube audience. It was an eerie thing to stand there with them sweetly digging in the sand, knowing the blood and treasure that had been lost on that hallowed ground, but well worth our time and yours. We learned about men like James Earl Rudder, the commanding officer of 2nd Battalion, 75th Rangers Regiment out of Texas. The Rangers had to climb up 100 foot ropes to the top of the point while taking machine gun fire and dodging grenades being launched on them from above. They lost 50 percent of their men, but made it to the top and destroyed the German gun batteries housing the enemy fire. They helped establish a beachhead for the Allied forces, seemingly without a care for their own safety or lives. In all, Around 133,000 troops from the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain landed on D-Day. The danger? Too grave to comprehend. You can't get your arms around it. We watched Saving Private Ryan before we went. Um, Had to fast forward through a few scenes because they were too brutal for the kids, but we, they got the idea. And you really can't, even seeing it there depicted in film, really understand what it would be like, you know, if if your boat pulled up and they had sort of the paneling and the back of the boat 
and the guys were coming in and the machine gun fire was hitting the back of those boats. And that was the only thing stopping the bullets from hitting the men. And then those, the, those sort of shields had to come down and provided the bridge for the, for the guys, like the, the ramp for the guys to run out. So the very thing shielding them from the bullets was about to come down. And the only thing left between them and the bullets was their clothing. <laughs> and they ran toward the machine gun fire. That's what they did. That happened. Our guys, you know, the Canadians, the Brits, there to liberate France. As we stood there in that very spot, overlooking the hundred foot cliffs that our guys scaled so bravely eight decades ago, it got me thinking about why they did it. Why? What would make a man do that? What would actually, we can talk about it. Yes. Okay. Love of country, but what would actually make him do it? And whether that loveless sacrifice would ever happen today. Now, back in 1984, on the 40th anniversary of D-Day, President Reagan took on this issue. He spoke to many of the veterans um, who were still alive then in the very same spot that I just showed you that we visited. Their mission was one of the most difficult and daring of the invasion, to climb these sheer and desolate cliffs and take out the enemy guns. Soon, one by one, the Rangers pulled themselves over the top and in seizing the firm land at the top of these cliffs, they began to seize back the continent of Europe. These are the boys of Point de Hope. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. You all knew that some things are worth dying for. One's country is worth dying for, and democracy is worth dying for, because it's the most deeply honorable form of government ever devised by man. All of you loved liberty. All of you were willing to fight tyranny. And you knew the people of your countries were behind you. The Americans who fought here that morning knew word of the invasion was spreading through the darkness back home. They fought or felt in their hearts, though they couldn't know in fact, that in Georgia they were filling the churches at 4 a.m. In Kansas they were kneeling on their porches and praying. And in Philadelphia, they were ringing the Liberty Bell. Hmm, I get the chills. The nation came together in a common purpose. The people joined in prayer to support those on the front lines, understanding that this mission was greater than themselves. We felt similar feelings in this country after 9-11. But that seems like a lifetime ago right now. There's no question that our elite fighters and our American military would do what was asked of them and do it with bravery and skill. The question is whether America could unite behind any similar cause these days, whether we will ever recapture the feeling of e pluribus unum out of many, one. I'm worried. Just before I left for vacation, the Democrat Party saw to it that for the first time in American history, a former president of the United States and the leading contender for the GOP nomination in the 2024 presidential contest was indicted on 37 federal felony counts, accused of hoarding documents, hoarding documents relating to the national defense and then of obstructing the Fed's efforts to get them back. The indictment is troubling on its face, there's no doubt, but here's the bottom line. It cannot be seen in a vacuum. Let's assume Trump did violate the law rather flagrantly. Should he be prosecuted? Well, you can't answer that without knowing the rest of the story. 
like all the chapters leading up to the moment the DOJ made a federal case out of Trump's behavior. The Russia hoax, which handicapped Trump's four years in office, in which the Democrats, including the FBI and the press, engaged in an extended campaign to steal his first term, disparaging him daily, accusing him of treason, essentially, and prosecuting the people around Trump as alleged Russian agents in a dishonest, trumped up, politically motivated effort to undermine his entire presidency. When all of that was officially chronicled by special counsel John Durham, the left yawned. No accountability, no horrified moral judgments, just move on. When the GOP controlled House censored Democrat Adam Schiff last week for his outright lies about the intelligence he claimed at the time to have seen in Russiagate, lies that helped mislead and confuse a nation and divide us at the core, he said he wore their contempt as a badge of honor. But Trump's document cash, that's supposed to really incense us. They tried to impeach him twice. They worked, we now know, through the supposedly nonpartisan FBI to suppress negative information about Joe Biden and his corrupt son, Hunter, in the lead up to the 2020 election. The CIA helped working with the Biden campaign to corral so-called intelligence experts to assure us that the Hunter Biden laptop was a Russian plant. Attorneys general like Letitia James in New York sued Trump repeatedly, trying to shut down his entire business. And now criminal cases are being threatened in as many as four jurisdictions for payoffs to porn stars that weren't totally documented properly, allegedly, and papers retained improperly, but without any evidence of them actually being exposed to our enemies. Can't say the same for Hillary Clinton's homebrew server, which experts believe was likely accessed by at least the Chinese. Hillary, who also defied a federal subpoena and destroyed documents and devices while under a legal obligation to produce them and was not prosecuted because why again? The indictment of Trump is part of a long pattern with the left. And the problem for many of us is without defending anything that Trump allegedly did, that it's impossible to detach the legal case from the political one. It's impossible. The latter is entirely the reason for the former. It is the reason Trump's supporters may not approve of how he allegedly handled himself here, but cannot bring themselves to really care when it comes to this election. They know these people will do anything to get him. And if it were not the documents, it would be something else. They will never stop. It is hard to support zealots on a political mission who tell us no one is above the law when targeting a Republican, but make obvious exceptions when the alleged criminal is a Clinton or a Biden. We'll get into this in a minute with Glenn Greenwald, but this same DOJ, which has such interest in Trump's files, apparently has none in those of Joe Biden. The news emerging over the past few days on alleged influence peddling, possible bribery and corruption involving our current president and his son is stunning. And yet these same notable federal authorities seem to have zero appetite to even investigate this matter. Forgive forgive us if we see the difference and decide Donald Trump's documents may not be a deal breaker. Let's not forget these same leftists who now claim to be the authorities right on righteousness and moral rectitude are trying at this moment to delegitimize the U.S. Supreme Court after failing in their push to pack it with extra justices. Why? Because it has a conservative majority. The conservatives didn't try to do this when the liberals had the majority, but because it's now a 6-3 court, 
it must be destroyed. One conservative justice after another gets targeted, first as alleged rapists or sexual abusers, and now as corrupt and unethical money grubbers. Their draft opinions get leaked. Their homes get targeted. Would-be assassins show up to murder them. And the left shrugs its shoulders saying, well, this is what democracy looks like. These experts in ethical standards wanted to prosecute parents for speaking out at school board meetings. They infiltrated church prayer groups during COVID. They wrote openly of their desire to surveil Catholic masses. In places like California, they are literally right now pushing legislation to criminalize parents who object to cutting off their children's body parts or to sterilizing them as minors if the child suffers a touch of gender confusion. You will affirm or you will be criminal. That's what's happening right now in California. We'll get to it. These are our moral betters. They lie to push their inclusive and tolerant agendas, like forcing girls to compete against boys in sports even when it might be dangerous, never mind unfair. Did you see the loon who heads up Human Rights Watch last week, testifying about fairness in athletics, trying to say no man could ever beat Serena Williams in tennis and that it is a lie to suggest otherwise? Riley Gaines thankfully was there at the moment and promptly shut that nonsense right down. Women you don't some that believe are that a biological male has a physical advantage in sports over a biological female? Not as a, a definitive statement. Well, I can say that, you know, there's been this news article about men that think that they could beat Serena Williams in tennis, right? That they think that they could actually score a point on her. Um, and it's just not the case. She is stronger James, than that. What's your experience, Ben? Male, female. Both Serena and Venus lost to the 203rd ranked male tennis player, which they're phenoms for women. Um, my experience, my husband, he swam at University of Kentucky as well. In terms of accolades and in terms of national ranking, I was a much better swimmer than him. Um, he could kick my butt any day of the week without trying. This woman doesn't know what she's talking about, this human rights campaign woman. And by the way, she controls corporate America, so it's a problem. She doles out the equity scores to which our moneymakers have become so beholden. This group used to just support gay rights, like same-sex same sex couple insurance benefits. That makes sense. Now it wants to demonize anyone who won't say she about a man prancing around the office with a beard and a bulge in his pants. Their lies about COVID, too, caused immense harm. They haven't been held accountable for any of it. Children kept out of schools, forced to get a vaccine they did not need, in which far too many cases scarred their hearts and impaired their cardiac health, all of which the left ignored or told us was a lie. To adults whose vaccine injuries were ignored or even mocked and whose job losses from the lockdowns or because they wouldn't get the vax were written off as a moral necessity. When the leftist party line on how the virus started, they said it was from an animal at a Chinese wet market. Where are they? They tested 80,000. They haven't found one yet. When that got questioned, they once again tried to shut down all debate. Now that the evidence has become undeniable, they ignore it or publish headlines claiming it'll just never be clear. That's what The New York Times wrote last week. But remember, folks, they're the ones about accountability. That's what they stand for. So, no, at the moment, we are nowhere close to unified. We are at each other's throats. And for very good reason. We love our country. At least some of us do. But to wrap arms around this radical left and say we're all on the same team right now is to deny reality. 
These people want to hurt our children and break up families. They weaponize our legal system to hurt their enemies. They undermine any institution that won't push their radical agenda. Harm to America be damned. The good news is the American people are not falling for it. 80% of Democrats, according to uh, the latest USA Today uh, poll, say that they want to make Joe Biden fight to become the Democratic nominee. 80% of Democrats want him to debate his more sensible opponents like RFK Jr. Trump, on the indictment front, has lost approximately zero support since the political hit job of that indictment was handed down. The leftist social agenda needs only to be exposed to be eventually ruined. Bud Light sales down lower than ever this past week. We checked. Catholics turned out in droves at the L.A. Dodgers celebration of the drag queen nun bashers and the trans psycho who decided to flash his fake breasts at a White House event last week was too much even for Team Biden, which mildly condemned him for his disgusting behavior. Because they were actually offended? God, no. You know that's not true. Because Americans are sick of this shit. We're in a different kind of battle for America right now. For the soul of the country, it doesn't require the kind of courage that it took to storm the beaches of Normandy. Let's not kid ourselves about that. But it does require some measure of courage. It requires us to stand up and not be cowed into saying what we know is not true. Like a man can become a woman. Like the COVID lockdowns were worth it. Like Trump belongs in prison. Like Biden is above reproach. These truths may not unify us in the short term, but long term, they're required if we want to find our way back to the America that once prayed together, fought together. The one that stormed those beaches for love of country to the one that stared fascism in the face and in response rang the Liberty Bell. We'll be right back with Glenn Greenwald for the entire show. So much to get to. Here with me now to talk Hunter Biden, brand new 2024 polling and shocking video of fully nude men performing in front of children at a so-called pride event over the weekend is my friend Glenn Greenwald. Glenn is the host of Rumble's System Update. Glenn, thanks for being back with me today to kick things off when I'm back from vacation. Um, this is the first I've seen you. Can we please let me start with just my my thoughts and renewed condolences to you on the loss of your husband, David? I'm so sorry. I I know it's awkward to start this way, but I just I haven't seen you since. And I've been thinking about you. My entire team has been thinking about you and praying for you since it happened. Thank you, Megan. That's very nice of you to say. I appreciate that. How you doing? Um, you know, it's it's of course very hard, but uh, the fact that I had the responsibility to kind of navigate this with my kids, with our kids, um, has turned out to be a huge blessing because it's the thing that gives you the purpose and the comfort and the strength to do that, and they do the same for me. And so, you know, at the end of the day you see what really matters in life, which is family and your most important connections. And I think that's in the starkest light possible as a result of losing somebody. And so, uh, yeah, just finding a lot of comfort and renewed purpose and being a father and uh, in family, which is the foundation for everything ultimately. Oh man, you know, it's it's hard to find something positive, you know, in, a, in an event like this, but I will say, 
I've seen it online and I'm sure you felt it immensely. The amount of love for you, Glenn, is overwhelming. I mean, this kind of thing reminds you of how valuable a, a person is to you, right? Like, how much do I care that Glenn's going through this? I care a lot. My team cares a lot. Uh, the, your support online, people's hearts just broke when they heard. And I know he'd been sick for a long time, but I hope that buoys you in some in some way because you really are loved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those things, the public reaction has been incredibly helpful. David, too, is somebody who just, you know, spread so much love. And so um, it was impossible not to like David. It was amazing. I saw his phone the minute that he went into the hospital, was filled with people from every single political faction in every single political camp who just always liked David, even if disagreeing with him. That's the kind of politics, just the kind of person he he tried to be and was. And so for sure, that kind of thing really uh, strengthens us as well. Mm. I'm sure it'll be a long, long process to get through this, but we're with you uh, in spirit, rooting for you. Thanks, always. Appreciate that. Um, All right. So we'll talk about the news, which is always a soothing bomb. Let's talk about other people's problems. (laughs) (laughs) Like Hunter Biden's. I've learned that the value is there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They are significant. I mean, first I saw the headline when I was gone that, you know, okay, he copped a deal on these misdemeanor charges, a slap on the wrist, and it was an obvious fig leaf, right? Like, oh, look, we charge everybody. We charge the Republican and we charge the Democrat. Oh, and it was an obvious BS um, on these, you know, tax charges and the the gun problems that he had. Uh, and it was really, I mean, I, I've seen different accounts, but lawyers I trust and people who have actually looked, done like comprehensive surveys of people facing the, the kind of gun charges, at least that he was facing, saying almost every single one of them would normally face prison time or something more significant than he's facing. But that's not even the big story. Then we then we find out that it's much more serious than we knew. These two IRS whistleblowers have come out to say the DOJ has been controlling this from the start, notwithstanding its protestations of non-interference, that Merrick Garland's DOJ's intentionally slow walked the entire thing, that they've been stopping the IRS investigators from doing their jobs, that they've been tipping off the Hunter Biden team time and time again, that investigations were coming, that phone calls were coming, that uh, interviews of witnesses were coming, that the feds were going to show up and do a document review, right? Similar to how they surprised Trump they wanted to do to Biden. No interference. Heads up. It was like they were working together, according to these whistleblowers, one of whom's come out by name, one of whom has yet to be specifically named. And we'll get to the WhatsApp WhatsApp message involving Joe Biden in a minute. But let's just start with the allegations being made by these two whistleblowers and how you see it. I think we need to start with the fact that you have to consider the enormous risks that these people are taking and the freight train that they're inviting to come rolling toward them by standing up and denouncing the corrupt politicization of the Hunter Biden investigation by the Biden Justice Department as a means of protecting the president's son. These are not powerful people. You're talking about a kind of mid to senior level investigator in the IRS, kind of a career public servant. And the second person seems to be even a little bit more junior. And the more senior one has put his name, has attached his name to these allegations. You can imagine the kind of scrutiny and attacks and the risk that that entails in order to do that leads me very strongly to just at least assume in the first instance that there must be some kind of good faith behind these claims. And that's exactly what they're claiming, which is that 
IRS supervisors and IRS investigators who work on these cases all the time said that in ordinary circumstances, if it weren't the president's son, this is the kind of case that would result never in misdemeanor charges, but in multiple felony charges. There were prosecutors in the Justice Department assigned to this case who also concluded that felony charges were the only viable path, that that would be true for anybody else. And what happened instead was at every step of the way, the investigation was interfered with and intervened by senior Justice Department officials who answered to the Biden White House in a way that that wasn't supposed to happen since it's a special counsel, constantly blocking avenues of investigation and ultimately demanding that only a misdemeanor charge be offered to him as part of a plea deal. And this is exactly the kind of politicization of the Justice Department that they claim President Trump was guilty of, that they swore they would yeah. never do. And it's not conservative media or Devin Nunez now claiming this. These are career civil servants putting their names on it at great risk to themselves and their career, putting themselves in peril in order to blow the whistle on this kind of a, a corruption. And to me, that is a very compelling sign that there's a lot here. I want to get into the specifics, but I mean, to me, the the the, the basic juxtaposition is no one is above the law. No one is above the law. No one is above the law unless your last name is Clinton or Biden. I just can't get like that's what I cannot get past. That is why it's very difficult to shed tears over the horrors that Donald Trump did with those documents. It's like either we're going to have one system of justice or we're not. And these two whistleblowers, their allegations are absolutely shocking about what was done in the Hunter Biden case. Why did it take five years? These two are telling us we now are getting the answers, at least according to them, the, the top line from each guy uh, is as follows. One named Gary Shapley, 14 year IRS veteran. Wall Street Journal says he was the leader of an elite team of agents specializing in international tax investigations brought in as supervisor of the Hunter case in January 2020. This wasn't some low, no nothing minion. <laughs> this guy was running the Hunter investigation and he said, quote, um, this criminal tax investigation of Hunter, quote, has been handled differently than any investigation I've ever been a part of for the past 14 years of my IRS service. The second unnamed whistleblower uh, said in his testimony that the conduct of prosecutors on this case, quote, quote, has honestly been appalling. And I do not think they are considering the human impact of the decisions they're making. Should start up front by saying the DOJ denies that the um, the guy investigating this, the U.S. attorney, David Weiss, had anything less than full control. They say he, he has full authority over the matter and really would like to distance Merrick Garland or his DOJ from having interfered. But that's not what in particular Shapley or the other guy uh, have been saying. There's a very specific list, Glenn, of 14 allegations uh, being made about these guys, including that they were stopped in pursuing search warrants of Joe Biden's guest house where Hunter had one time lived because of the optics that they wanted to search a storage unit in Virginia where Hunter had moved business documents. I thought they cared about business documents. They had to make sure that they're secure. He had moved business documents and the team wanted to search it and that the their boss, the U.S. attorney, Ms. Wolf, again, objected, tipping off Hunter's defense counsel, um, ruining their chance to get to the evidence before it was destroyed or manipulated, that the FBI tipped off Hunter's Secret Service team to a proposed day of action in which members of the U.S. attorney David Weiss's team intended to conduct surprise interviews of witnesses, including Hunter. Instead, the FBI gave Hunter's Secret Service team a heads up that they were going to do it. 
And of the 12 plus interviews they hope to conduct, they only got one, said the um, said the whistleblower. And then Hunter lawyered up that um, they were blocked from pursuing leads about the financial transactions of Hunter's children, saying they'd get into hot water if we interviewed the president's grandchildren. We were told not to look into evidence of campaign violations, that they prepared a document in late 2021 covering the tax years 2014 through 19, in which it recommended charging Hunter with felony tax evasion, felony false tax returns and failures to pay tax. Um, this is based, said the whistleblower, on his textbook tax evasion of declaring his income from the Ukrainian firm Burisma as a loan. They were also looking at charging him as a foreign agent, an unregistered foreign agent. But according to Mr. Shapley, uh, the Weiss team was prepared to pr- pursue these charges, but was blocked by Biden appointees, despite Attorney General Merrick Garland's public claim that Mr. Weiss was independent. I could go on and will in a minute. But these are I mean, there's if this is true, Glenn, um, there's no question that the DOJ interfered. And it's why Kevin McCarthy today is suggesting he may, depending on where this goes, push to impeach Merrick Garland. What do you make of it? I think this is the key part of this, which is and you just did a great job elucidating this fact, which is this is not a case where someone inside the IRS is coming forward with just assertions or unhinged allegations that seem ideological or partisan. Not only are there all kinds of specifics, specifics about how the DOJ interfered with the investigation, how the DOJ overrode what ordinarily would be normal investigatory avenues. Do you think in most cases where they're investigating somebody for tax evasion, they're shy about going and investigating and talking to the family members who are part of the finances of the person being investigated? Needless to say, the IRS is not exactly unforthcoming or nor is the Justice Department when it comes to those kind of investigations the way they were here. But also they have documentary evidence which they furnished to the committees in the Congress substantiating all of these allegations. So the credibility of these claims is as high as you can possibly get. Now, they should be investigated fully, but it's a very promising start from the perspective of whether the allegations are credible or not when you have somebody putting their name on it, somebody being this specific, and most important of all, somebody offering documentary substantiation for the claims that they're making. I think it's important as well to take a step back because you mentioned the Donald Trump prosecution. It is so crucial There were people, this is very predictable what they were going to do. And there were people predicting it. Ted Cruz, you know, whatever else you think of him, you can go back and find him over the last year saying that exactly this was going to happen, that they were going to indict Donald Trump on serious federal charges. And then shortly after, in order to prove they were being even handed, they were going to indict Hunter uh, Biden or charge Hunter Biden, but in a way that would ensure that he would be protected, which is exactly what ended up happening. That's how flagrant and transparent it was, that it was so predictable what they're doing. I don't know if you saw, you probably did see this week at Megan regarding that that very short-lived coup in, in Russia. All weekend yeah. long in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, there are all kinds of reports about what U.S. intelligence agencies knew about what was happening, about what they knew in advance. Every single instance where you see an article like that is an instance of somebody leaking top secret information two newspapers in a way that is unauthorized and therefore illegal under the law. Nobody cares. No one's interested in finding the source of this. These people play with classified information, top secret documents every single way this day. And now you have Donald Trump 
who isn't accused of leaking this information to anybody as part of the indictment, who's just accused of having taken it, even though he could have declassified it had he wanted to. But the, I guess the allegation is he just failed to do so. And all the same people who every day spill top secret information on the pages of the newspapers or who inside the government pass it to, 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 to reporters are feigning this indignation over how Donald Trump treated our secret classified documents by keeping it recklessly or negligently inside Mar-a-Lago to the point that he's being indicted when every day far more serious leaks happen and they don't even charge the person at all. They don't even care to pretend that they're angry about it. This is how you see the politicization of the Justice Department on the other end, where they're clearly abusing the justice system. They want to charge Donald Trump, most of all, with the very dangerous claim that the speech he gave, the political speech he gave on January 6th, incited the three-hour riot at the Capitol, even though in that speech he specifically, explicitly said, go and protest peacefully. And so now you have on the other end these very serious allegations that Hunter Biden, who by all accounts committed serious crimes, has been protected. Now, let me just say the last thing about this making, because this is the part that's really angering me the most. I am actually somebody who thinks that, you know, people who have drug addiction in their lives and then overcome it are people who have done something commendable. I think addicts, I think it's wrong to try and imprison addicts. And what they're doing is they know that a lot of American families have also struggled with addiction and are struggling with addiction for all kinds of reasons. And they're exploiting these emotions to try and say, and NPR had an article explicitly saying this, so did Nick Kristoff over the weekend in the New York Times. Saw it. Anybody who questions what's happening with Hunter Biden is stigmatizing the the or strengthening the stigma around addiction as a way to pr protect Hunter Biden. Joe Biden is the person most responsible for the laws that send addicts, other families, children, to prison just for possession of drugs when they're addicts. He was so proud of that record in the Senate, he hasn't changed it at all. And the parts of what Hunter Biden did, even if parts of it were about addiction, it's not like because you're an addict and you deserve uh, praise for overcoming it, it justifies anything and everything that you do. But this is the way they're exploiting these emotions. And the key question remains, what did Joe Biden know about these business deals in China and Ukraine? And you alluded to documents showing that he knew something. And this is what they're now doing is Joe Biden's a career architect of the prison state sending addicts to prison and now is, you know, shedding crocodile tears, tears over addiction as a way to protect his son and himself from inquiry. Mm -hmm. Oh, we're definitely going to get into the addiction uh, distraction in one second. But I, I want to stay on the because I'm going I'm to play what the administration is saying to defend all this in a minute. But th what we've learned from these whistleblowers is on the real meat of the Hunter Biden case, the real reason the laptop was potentially interesting, to put it mildly, was whether it exposed corruption by Joe Biden in connection with his son, whether they were doing business deals in exchange for influence peddling you know, why did they pay Hunter Biden all this money, fifty thousand dollars a month, this Ukrainian business uh, that wasn't getting any expertise from him? Why? It was because his last name was Biden. Well, what did Biden have to do with that, if anything? Was anything promised in exchange? Was anything done in exchange? Was that prosecutor fired by Biden in Ukraine, which he admitted he did? But was it done for reasons connected to his deals with Hunter? All those things that people want answers to, which would make this story absolutely explosive and not just about somebody who lied about his taxes, which was a big deal, by the way. People get prosecuted all the time for lying on their taxes repeatedly year after year. He did. And the gun charge. Um, and there's evidence from the whistleblowers that that exposes some of the facts around this. Here's one. Among other things, this is again from Shapely. Among other things, we wanted to question Hunter B uh, Biden's business partner, Rob Walker, 
about an email that said 10 held by H for the big guy. Our audience is familiar with that phrase. It's become sort of known. Bobolinsky talked about it, too, that they were that Hunter Biden and his business partner were doing some deal and that they're going to hold 10 percent for the big guy, believed by many to be Joe Biden, showing that he had some stake in the deals that his son was doing. He says, shapely, we had obvious questions like who was H, who was the big guy and why this percentage was to be held separately with the association hidden. But shapely said assistant U.S. attorney Leslie Wolf, again, same woman all over these documents. She's the assistant USA, not the top dog, uh, interjected and said she did not want to ask about the big guy and stated she did not want to ask questions about, quote, dad. When multiple people in the room spoke up and objected that we had to ask, she responded, there is no specific criminality to that line of questioning. Um, He repeatedly testified, shapely did that there were multiple times, that's a quote, where Leslie Wolf said she did not want to ask questions about dad, which is how they referred to Joe Biden. She shut it down at every turn. And now listen to how the administration defends what's coming out. We'll get to the WhatsApp message, which is damning, too. It's it's one in which Hunter Biden basically says, I'm sitting right next to my dad and I want my money to the Chinese. Um, But listen to this exchange with uh, John Kirby and uh, James Rosen, who's now with Newsmax, thought too. Does this not undermine uh, the president's claim during the 2020 campaign and the reaffirmations of that claim by his two press secretaries since then that he never once discussed his son's overseas business dealings with him? No, and I'm not going to comment further on this. I am not going to address this issue from this podium. I'm just not going to do it. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. And now here's Corinne Jean-Pierre in SOT 3. So Kirby wouldn't answer James's question, though. Are you going to answer the question? I, mean, I believe my colleague uh, at the White House Council uh, has answered this question already. I just don't have anything to share outside of what my colleagues have shared. Just not going to comment from here. You've stated that the president stands by his comment from the 2020 campaign that he never once discussed his son's overseas business dealings with his son. And you stood at that podium yeah. and you reaffirmed that. Do you stand by your reaffirmation? I, what I will say, nothing has changed. Was the president there or not? I would refer you to my colleagues at the White House Council. Have you asked him whether he was there with his son on July 30th? This is not a conversation that I've had with the president. Again, I would refer you to the White House Council. I refer you to the Department of Justice on anything else if you don't want to speak to the White House Council's office. So it's just a complete shutdown, Glenn. It's a sh- and, and, and elsewhere they're saying, look, there's no evidence. There's no evidence he did anything. There's no evidence that the president did anything wrong because there's been no investigation. That's what the whistleblower is showing us. I think we need to go back to what I regard as one of the greatest scandals on the part of the media in the last several decades, which is all of these questions before the 2020 election were well known. Because the New York Post was able to get a hold of Hunter Biden's laptop and on that laptop contained a lot of information, not about Hunter Biden, but about Joe Biden, in particular, whether Joe Biden was participating in the attempt to profiteer both in Ukraine and in China based on selling access to him and his name. And what happened was every single time a reporter, and it wasn't very often, but one time when a reporter asked Joe Biden about that, it was Bo Erickson of CBS News on the tarmac during the campaign when Joe Biden had landed for a campaign event, asked him about whether he actually was involved in these business deals. Joe Biden called him basically a scumbag and a smear artist. And essentially those words, 
and the media sided with Biden against their own colleague. There were a few members of the press who said he's just doing his job, but a lot of members of the media said Bo Erickson is serving as an agent of the Kremlin by asking this information because you recall, of course, that they created a lie. The CIA created a lie, passed it to Natasha Bertrand at Politico, and this became the claim they all made that the information on that laptop was unreliable because it was Russian disinformation. So every time a member of the press or Trump in the debates tried to ask Biden whether he was a participant in these deals, he was allowed to get away with doing what they're now doing, which is say, how dare you? I'm not going to answer. I'm proud of my son. And this is Russian disinformation. Megan, every media outlet, practically every media outlet endorsed the idea, the lie that that laptop was Russian disinformation. They now all admit that the laptop was authentic all along. They've authenticated the contents of the laptop. Not a single media outlet has gone back and said uh, to our viewers, to our readers, we would like you to know when we told you before the election, this was Russian disinformation. We got this completely wrong. And here's how it happened. None of them have retracted it. None of them even admitted it. And the reason the White House press secretary and Biden's high, highest officials believe they can get away with basically sticking their middle finger up to journalists and the public wanting to know if Biden participated in these deals is they know the media has already created this narrative that even asking these questions is inappropriate. There will be no pressure at all from the media for answers. Maybe they're now asking a little bit. You see in the White House press briefing room, I'm not sure beyond the Newsmax person, James Rosen, how much, where else that came from. So it's good to hear at least some people demanding answers. But at least as of now, they believe with good reason that the media will help them shut this all down. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, there's much more to discuss. We'll take a break in a minute, and, but there's a lot more to get into. But just while we're on the subject of The New York Times, you mentioned Nick Kristoff, who wrote this, you know, a tug at your heartstrings piece about how, oh, he's just an addict. And really, this is a great opportunity for Joe Biden to be the next Betty Ford. I mean, he actually says that and just sort of embrace the addiction problem and really help people. That's not what this is about. But in his piece, he writes the following uh, with the while the federal investigation appears to be ongoing, because that's what U.S. Attorney David Weiss has said, like, OK, we've got these this plea to these misdemeanors, I mean, you know, but we're still investigating everything, which just again, just feels very much like a fig leaf for not doing anything on the the meat of the actual charges that could be brought here. He says, Christoph, while the federal investigation appears to be ongoing for now, I see no clear evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden himself. No clear evidence of wrongdoing. You no one's looked into it, Nick. No one. The reason you see no clear evidence of wrongdoing is because no one is asking these questions. The whistleblower from DOJ or from IRS has said exactly that, that the U.S. attorney, the assistant U.S. attorney Wolf shut them down at every turn and that Merrick Garland was essentially sticking his nose in to protect the president as soon as they got on to any hot lead. Megan, you mentioned Tony Babalinski earlier. I can promise you, I bet you anything or anyone any amount of money that if you ask most liberals who Tony Bobulinski is, they will have no idea who that person is, even though Tony Bobulinski was a critical figure because before the 2020 election, when they were all claiming that this material was Russian disinformation and therefore should be ignored, step forward and prove the material in the archive was authentic because he could show in his phone the emails he got in real time and they match word for word what was in the archive. And he also said before the election that the deal sheet for the deal in China that Hunter Biden was pursuing with Jim Biden and with Tony Bobulinski as partners 
there was that phrase 10% for the big guy. And everybody knew the 10% for the big guy was Joe Biden, that he was going to get 10% of the deal profits from this, from this transaction. And as you say, the reason why people like Nick Kristoff say, I haven't seen any clear evidence of any wrongdoing is because they prevented anyone from asking these questions by <laughs> lying and saying that this was all disinformation, uh, that it came from the Kremlin. Big tech censored the story from even circulating before the election. And every time anybody goes to ask Joe Biden or raise these questions, people like Nick Kristoff and NPR, which did it even worse, come forward and say any attempt to use Hunter Biden against Joe Biden is an attempt to stigmatize right. addiction. Addiction. It's incredibly right, let's pause dishonest. There. We're going to pick it up in two minutes. Don't go away. Okay, so on the heels of all this, the whistleblower coming forward to say that this woman Weiss, uh, I'm sorry, this woman um, who works for Weiss was at every turn uh, Wolf. Wolf is the woman. She works for Weiss, who's the top dog in the Delaware um, U.S. Attorney's Office. And she, which presumably is on behalf of her boss, David Weiss, who's in charge of the whole Hunter Biden investigation. She's running around shutting down the investigation at every turn. Don't look into the dad. That's not a line of criminal investigation. Don't ask about bribery. Don't ask about anything in office, Don't, like nothing. Um, so in the wake of these two whistleblowers coming forward, saying these charges against Hunter are B.S., any private citizen would have been charged a lot more. And here's why they're not more bulky. And here's why there's nothing in there about influence peddling. They, I mean, they're revealing it all. We get this. Um, one of the whistleblowers pointing us to a WhatsApp message from July 2017. This WhatsApp message was sent by Hunter Biden to Henry Zhao, a Chinese Communist Party official. And it reads as follows. I am sitting here with my father. And we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Tell the director that I would like to resolve this now before it gets out of hand. And now means tonight. And Z, if I get a call or a text from anyone involved in this other than you, Zhang or the chairman, I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. So they want this Chinese Communist Party official to call them about the commitment made, but not yet fulfilled. And if he doesn't get it, he's going to make certain that Joe Biden and everyone he knows uh, will ensure that the Chinese regret not following Hunter's orders. So now at first we saw this, Glenn, a lot of people said, let's just wait. We know we don't know whether that actually happened. We haven't seen the WhatsApp. Like, who knows whether that's true or not? Well, Hunter's lawyer weighs in. The guy's name is Chris Clark. He puts out a statement on Friday, essentially admitting that it's real. That's really what he did, saying the DOJ investigation covered a period. Here we go with the addiction, which was a time of turmoil and addiction for my client. Any verifiable words or actions of my client in the midst of a horrible addiction are solely his own and have no connection to anyone in his family. And he goes on to say this whole thing's biased and politically motivated. That's rich. He says, um, serious questions. Uh, OK, a close examination of the document released publicly yesterday by a very biased individual raise, raises serious questions over whether it is what he claims it to be. It is dangerously misleading to make any conclusions or inferences based on the document. He does not say it's false. He does not deny that it happened at all. He's just trying to throw a little stank on it so that it doesn't resonate. And of course, it won't with the left anyway. But this is this is probably the most the closest thing we have to a smoking gun 
where it's Hunter himself saying he's sitting next to Joe Biden, who allegedly never even spoke to Hunter once about his foreign business dealings. That's what he told us when he ran for president in 2020, um, who's sitting right there as he threatens the Chinese Communist Party to give them a payment or the Bidens will make them pay. Put it in perspective for us. Well, so let's take a look at what we know for sure, because as you say, that lawyer did not deny the authenticity of that message. Although, as you say, he tried to like throw a little smoke around it. It's exactly the same thing they tried to do when the laptop first emerged, which was obviously there were people claiming that the laptop was inauthentic and was Russian disinformation. But notably, Joe Biden and his son never once claimed that. So the first thing you do if you're a real journalist is you go to the Hunter Biden and you ask him, is this authentically yours? These messages on the and these documents on these, this laptop. And he was allowed to get away with saying, I don't know. It could be. I'm not sure which automatically make. And I can tell you as a journalist who has worked with very large archives before and had to have the, and had the burden of having to authenticate them in order to stake your career on publishing them, that one of the very first things you look for is whether the people whose messages you're reporting them to be deny it. And if they don't, that's very strong proof that they're actually real. So in this case, the lawyer is not denying it, as you said. And so what we know for sure is that Hunter Biden went around all the time throwing his weight around and his father's weight around, threatening people that he need they needed to pay him. Otherwise, his father would take vengeance on them. That we know is true for sure. The question is, was Joe Biden really sitting next to Hunter Biden at yep. the time that Hunter Biden sent that message? Was Hunter Biden lying in order to get the money more quickly? I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that there was obviously some context that the Chinese had to have learned about or know about that where they believed Joe Biden was involved in the deal. Otherwise, it would make no sense. How would that threat even be uh, valuable to say my father's sitting next to me? They would say, what do you mean your father? What does your father have to do with this? There was obviously a sense in the air that Joe Biden was involved in this deal and therefore would be angry if they didn't respond with the money. Now the question becomes, you have to ask Joe Biden, you have to ask Hunter Biden whether or not Biden was really there, whether he was involved in these deals. And this is the thing the media doesn't want to do. The one other thing I'll say, Megan, is you noted the uh, the U.S. attorney has kind of said, oh, we're still investigating. And the reason that caught my attention is because obviously the House Republicans should subpoena Hunter Biden and ask him that question and a lot of other yes. similar questions. And the concern is now he could raise a Fifth Amendment self-incrimination privilege by saying, since there's an ongoing investigation, I don't have to answer because I may incriminate myself. It's perfect. It's actually really well done by Team Biden because it, it, you've got him pleading guilty to these small misdemeanors, but he can't yet speak about the real meat of the case because ongoing investigation. But none of us believes that the ongoing investigation will produce any real charges against him. It's very well done. They're very smart. Mm -hmm. They're clever. Whoever's advising them is giving them very good legal advice and political advice. Um, but I want to add an important piece to the story. So we have the WhatsApp message in which Hunter Biden allegedly threatens the Chinese Communist Party. You pay up. Uh, or you're going to get it. You're going to get it not just from me, but from my dad. And it's a good point that we don't know whether Joe Biden was, in fact, sitting next to him. Same way as in the Trump indictment case, when Trump allegedly waved around a document saying, look, this is the this is the plan to attack Iran that Mark Milley gave to me. We don't know whether that was, in fact, a, a classified plan to attack Iran that Mark Milley gave him. He could have just been bluster. And this, too, could have been just bluster. We don't know. Um, but one month after this WhatsApp message, Hunter Biden got paid $5 million by the Chinese. 
<laughs> it's pretty good evidence in a court of law that it was a conversation that happened, that he did make a threat and that the Chinese did then pay. And I'll give you the um, actual reporting um, on all, from Fox News. On August 4th, 2017, again, this this WhatsApp message was June 12th, 2017. And we should discuss the fact that it happened when he wasn't in office. Joe Biden he was a private citizen at the time when what that why that matters. But on August 4th, 2017, so it's two months later, the Chinese firm CF, CEFC Inve- Infrastructure Investment wired $100,000 to Hunter Biden's law firm, according to a report published by Senate Homeland Security. Then days later, on August 8th, 2017, CEFC Infrastructure, the Chinese, uh, sent $5 million to a firm Hunter Biden opened with Chinese associates. The two transactions totaling $5.1 million came within 10 days of messages uncovered on Thursday, uh, thanks to the whistleblower, including this WhatsApp. So within 10 days uh, of some of the messages that he sent and within two months of this particular. Um, oh, you know what? I need to correct myself because I think that June 12th date is from a different different piece. So it was within 10 days of his threat that he got the payment within. T- it was worse than two months. It was within 10 days that he got paid. Um, this is this looks terrible. It looks like him using the old man that they're threatening to do something, obviously politically, because Joe Biden had no power as just a public speaker in 17. The threat was he was recently the vice president. He's got close ties to the man who was most recently the president, and he's the likely nominee to become the Democratic uh, candidate for president going forward. Uh, however, he wasn't actually in office when this whole thing went down. So how does that affect the legality and the ethics of this whole thing? Well, I don't really I mean, it, it might affect the legality in terms of Joe Biden selling access to himself. But in terms of the ethics, I don't think it affects anything at all. First of all, I want to go back to the Burisma issue because Nobody believes even Democrats won't try and claim that Joe that Hunter Biden got fifty thousand dollars a month from Burisma, which is a Ukrainian energy company in legal trouble because they thought he had some kind of expertise in like Eastern European energy. He had none. Obviously, that was an attempt to gain access to his father's influence. And the reason this matters so much is because if you're usually let's say you're an American company facing legal problems, you would want to pay the child of a of a powerful American politician in order to help your problems. I think it's so notable that Ukraine, a Ukrainian energy company didn't pay the child of a Ukrainian politician. They paid Joe Biden's son when he was still vice president, because the reality was the United States was running Ukraine right on the other side of the Russian border after Victoria Nuland picked that government. And Joe Biden was essentially operating as the imperial consul of of Ukraine. And it, I think, stretches credulity, the breaking point to think that this sophisticated company was paying Hunter Biden $50,000 a month in order to get favors from Joe Biden and never once got any favors, that Joe Biden was completely unaware of this and somehow Hunter kept tricking them. So this is what I'm trying to say too, Megan, with regard to the payment that Hunter Biden got. It wouldn't make any sense as a threat if there was no previous context to the involvement of Joe Biden. Let's say you and I are negotiating And out of nowhere, I say, hey, Megan, if you don't pay me, I'm going to get Hillary Clinton to be really angry. You would say, what do you mean? What does Hillary Clinton have to do with this deal? (laughs) It would only make sense if you already believed and if it was already true that Hillary Clinton was involved in the deal and also stood to benefit. So it's very it's very compelling evidence that that threat worked. And the only reason that threat would work is because Joe Biden was involved in the deal. As for not being a, a vice president at the time. 
these people are incredibly powerful. I mean, Joe Biden was just the vice president. He has connections to the entire top wing of the Democratic Party power structure, the U.S. intelligence community. Everybody knew he was going to run in 2020. He was the likely presidential frontrunner. He still had enormous access. Maybe there's six some months legal... after he left the vice presidency. Exactly. And so maybe there's some legal provisions about what you can do to sell access while you're in office that don't apply once you're out of office. But as an ethical matter and as an optics matter and as a corruption matter, selling your political influence that way to foreign countries, especially to U.S. adversary like China, is, of course, deeply disturbing, which is why they're lying about it and hiding it. If they weren't, if there weren't anything wrong with it, they would admit it. And you wouldn't see this kind of attempt to first lie and say the Hunter Biden laptop was, was Russian disinformation. And now this complete shutdown and this refusal to answer. All right. I, I'm, I know it's complicated already, but I've got to add in the third element, because what we have now is the whistleblower from the IRS saying there was this WhatsApp exchange in the summer of 17 talking about you pay me now, Chinese, or you're going to get it from me, the grudge holder and my dad. And then a month later, or 10 days later, he got paid five point one million dollars. Um, but go back a little. That was summer of 17. Go back a little to when Joe Biden was still the sitting vice president of the United States, because there's another story about alleged influence peddling and payments and potential bribes from during that time that also involves the five million number. And I don't totally understand how they all interact or whether these are separate payments and separate threats. It hasn't been totally exposed. But we before I left for vacation, we're talking about how the GOP controlled House right now was arguing with the FBI, threatening the FBI director that if he did not submit this form 1023, which had a whistle, a different whistleblower coming forward saying, I've got credible evidence of bribes by the then sitting vice president. If they, they did not let Congress review that document at its leisure, have the document, be able to peruse the document and so on, they were going to charge Chris Ray uh, with contempt. Ultimately, they won that fight and they got the 1023 document to review. And you had this is when you had people like Nancy Mace, who she's the opposite of a bomb thrower. She's a moderate Republican. She doesn't like Trump. She never defends Trump. She comes out and says, what I saw is shocking and raises serious questions about the integrity of the, the current president of the United States, Joe Biden. That's my paraphrase. So this is before this WhatsApp message. And this, to set the stage, uh, describes that 1023. OK, it alleges that the then vice the then vice president, Joe Biden. So this is before, you know, while he was still in office and Hunter Biden each received five million as part of a bribery scheme, not with the Chinese, which allegedly happened in 17, but as a bribery scheme with a Burisma executive <laughs> with a, This is back to the Ukrainian firm. That's what was alleged. The whistleblower emphasized it would have been relevant to the investigation since they had email correspondence um, from a few years earlier than that, than that referencing a five million dollar payment. So what they're saying is even before the five million from the Chinese in 17, there may have been five million and five million again to son and father while he was the sitting vice president. <laughs> this is the fact that we won't investigate this, Glenn, is an absolute outrage. Megan, and also let's remember that it isn't that there's this abstract claim that they wanted favors from Joe Biden. We know that Joe Biden was aggressively demanding that the Ukrainians fire that prosecutor and was threatening to withhold aid if they didn't. Now, he bragged about just it. Think about that. Yeah, exactly. So just think about this like the it's one thing for the United States to 
put pressure on a, another government, especially one that we give aid to, to at the presidential level, reel in human rights abuses. That's something you kind of expect the United States to do or that at least it does all the time. Think about the level of micromanagement that Joe Biden was doing in Ukraine, that he had a specific prosecutor he wanted removed. And of course, the claim is that was the EU view that this prosecutor wasn't doing enough about corruption, but it just so happened to benefit the company that was paying Hunter Biden $50,000 a month. And at the same time, there is an allegation that the Bidens got a $5 million bribe from Burisma that the FBI knew about and worked to conceal from the House Oversight Committee. So again, we don't know. Did they get that $5 million as the uh, whistleblower alleged? Because none of these things are being investigated because they're stonewalling it. The Republicans are trying but the media is completely uninterested in these questions. And there's so much smoke here that at some point there's got to be fire causing that smoke. Here's Joe Biden's reaction uh, to this. He was asked about the bribery allegations um, and it is soundbite six. Are there tapes that you accepted bribes, President Biden? Is that true? Would you comment on the arrest of the former president, sir? Okay, so he smiles, he laughs it off. And the reason he was being asked about tapes is yet another wrinkle to this whole thing, where in which Senator Chuck Grassley on the Senate floor on Monday, June 12th, I think it was, uh, yeah, said, said that the person, I think it's in that 1023, the foreign national who allegedly bribed Joan Hunter Biden, uh, allegedly has audio recordings of his conversations. So he's claiming that back in that 1023 document in which a whistleblower came forward saying, I, you know, I've got I've got this this person who we trusted came forward saying I've got proof that they took bribes. Um, they're saying that there were audio recordings that the foreign national kept. The, the bribe payer has them. 17 such recordings. This is a per Grassley. Um, according to that document, the 10, 1023, the foreign national possesses 15 audio recordings of phone calls between him and Hunter Biden and two audio recordings of phone calls between him and then Vice President Joe Biden. He goes on to say the recordings were allegedly kept as a sort of insurance policy for the foreign national in case he got into a tight spot. The Republicans admit they don't actually have the recordings. They cannot state for a fact that they even, uh, you know, what exactly is on them. But Chuck Grassley says, I just know they exist because of what this report says, but then kind of admits he doesn't know for a fact they exist. He just believes that this man is saying it's true. Um, the foreign national claims he has them. So Joe Biden laughs it off. And in any fair fight, what would happen here is the Biden team would laugh and they would deny. And the Re Republicans in the House and now the Senate would investigate and push for information. And the media would be a fair arbiter pushing for one thing, which is truth instead of running defense for if, if all this stuff is true, this is the most most corrupt president in recent American history. <laughs> I don't know how far we should go back, but certainly in recent American history. And that's saying something. Um, but the media is not honest and they're not in the search of truth. They want us all to believe we're mean for wanting to know. We're mean for not understanding Hunter was an addict. We're the nasty ones for wanting real data. And it's not just the media. It's well-known Democrats, both in office and recently out. Here is former Senator Clara McCaskill on MSNBC. Top five. I think Joe Biden has shown a wonderful role model to the country about unconditional love 
What what do these jerks in the House want Joe Biden to do? Throw him out? Refuse to speak to him? Say he doesn't love him publicly? Do they not understand this disease and how it works? Hunter Biden has gone through recovery under the brightest lights imaginable. Everybody needs to back off Joe Biden about this. He loves his son. Back off. It is okay for him to love his son. And there's nothing wrong with it. They have no evidence of any kind of wrongdoing by Joe Biden. And it infuriates me that they're using this heartbreak against Joe Biden in this way. It's just not right. Oh, my God. I mean, oh, my God, Glenn. These people are broken, Megan. I mean, they're monstrous. I mean, to use addiction in that way and to pretend that that's the... Okay, I put a video on Twitter this weekend, and there are so many more like them, of Joe Biden at the floor of the Senate standing up and talking about how proud he is of the fact that he and Strom Thurmond co-authored multiple crime bills that made sure, and he boasted about this, that if you have a crack cocaine the size of a quarter, it doesn't matter how big it is. It can be totally small and clearly for your personal use because you're an addict, you will go to prison for five years and they took away the discretion of judges to consider a drug counseling program or a probation program. Joe Biden hasn't cared about addiction one second of his life, quite the contrary. He's the reason addicts go to prison at such large numbers in the United States. And he didn't back away from those positions when Hunter Biden went through his addiction problems. President Trump is the one who, the first president in decades to sign a criminal justice reform bill to make it less harsh on people who are addicts. He worked with the ACLU to do it. And Joe Biden never had the slightest inkling to care about any of this until it came time to have people like his allies, Claire McCaskill, you know, invoke this kind of indignation that a lot of American families do sympathize with. No one's saying Joe Biden shouldn't love his son. They're saying that Joe Biden should have to answer questions about whether he got bribes and participated in this influence peddling. And look at how just cravenly and cynically they exploit this question in order to protect Biden from those answers. Yes. Yes. So well said. That's exactly it. It's infuriating. And that's his response to everything. I love my son. I'm proud of my son. In a court of law, I would stand up and say, objection, non-responsive. Now answer the question I asked you. Were you part of a bribery scheme? Did you take part in these discussions? Did you receive any monies through Hunter or one of his associates from the following years? I love my son and I'm proud of my son is non-responsive. It is irrelevant, as is Hunter's addiction. It wouldn't save you or me from crimes we committed, and it cannot save him or his dad if they committed crimes here. So you you mentioned a minute ago about how the media has been complicit in covering up this whole story dating back from the inception of the laptop being revealed by The New York Post. Big tech working with the FBI and the CIA to tamp it down, to stop the circulation of the story, to dismiss what was on the laptop as misinformation, disinformation from the Russians and how from the beginning, like this is MSNBC right now with Claire McCaskill, former senator, Democrat, saying back off, back off. But from the beginning, the media has been running this game. And you mentioned the interview. I refer you back to CBS interviewing Hunter when he had the nerve to publish a book post laptop. Remember this exchange. Was that your laptop? For real? I don't know. I know, but, but you know that's this is I really a, don't know if okay. the answer is. That's you don't know yes or no if the laptop I don't have was any yours. idea. I have no idea. So it could have been yours. Of course, certainly. It, 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 there could be a laptop out there that was stolen from me. There could be that I was hacked. It could be that that was the that it was 
Russian intelligence. It could be that it was stolen from me. Look, I really don't know. And the fact of the matter is it's a red herring. It is absolutely red herring. But I am absolutely, um, I think, within my, my rights to question anything that comes from the, uh, from the desk of Rudy Giuliani. Um, and so I don't know is the answer. They let him get away with it then, and they're determined to let him get away with it now. I mean, you what I think is so interesting about those clips is it shows how sociopathically Hunter Biden is willing to lie with or without addiction. The fact that he didn't know that those emails were authentic is such a blatant lie. For one thing, you could have just gone and checked your email accounts just because you lose your physical laptop doesn't mean you don't have access to your email accounts. He had business partners who received those emails in real time who also could have confirmed that those were his. You you maybe not you maybe you don't remember every last trivial email that you wrote to somebody, but of course you know the significant ones that you've written about major business deals where you got paid five million dollars. Of course, the whole and oh, this is the other thing I think is so important, Megan, is as part of this IRS whistleblower, uh whistleblowers coming forward. They acknowledge or they demonstrated that the FBI was aware since 2019 about the authenticity of the laptop. So, well, almost a year before the CIA started lying through Natasha Bertrand saying that this was Russian disinformation, the FBI already knew about this laptop, was using it as part of their investigation and had already concluded that it was authentic and then allowed every major power center in the United States to unite and lie two weeks before the election to try and prevent or give Joe Biden a reason not to have to answer these questions. So the lying that gets done and the ease with which they do it is just so striking. There it is. So what they've been telling us all along is, eh, meh, the Hunter Biden laptop, is it really going to change the election? I mean, like, who cares? He's like a hot mess. Hunter Biden with hookers and drugs. And you know, that. we knew it was a hot mess. So this is just like extra, as the kids would say. This shows he's an extra hot mess. Um, it, it's, there's so much more on there, right? It's if you dig deep and you start digging and digging, and maybe if we had launched an investigation at the time, we would have had whistleblowers come forward, um, because all this 1023 stuff had happened long before then. And, you know, so on, M- maybe it would have changed hearts and minds. If this guy's as corrupt as it, it, it smells from these allegations, which are unproven and we need, we need more. What we're asking for is a full investigation. People might care, right? But all along it's, there's no there there. It's a bunch of BS. And it the suppression of it, once we found out it wasn't BS, was irrelevant. It didn't change hearts or minds. It wouldn't have moved the needle in the election. And now that we're into really the nitty gritty of it, Glenn, people need to pause and really ask themselves whether they can honestly say that. Megan, this is a very closely contested election. It was decided by roughly 70 or 80,000 votes in a handful of swing states. And this is the question I've always had for the people who claim there's nothing on the laptop that's incriminating that would have changed votes, which obviously you'll never know the answer to that counterfactual. But my question always is, if it's true that there's nothing on this laptop that would have changed anybody's mind, why is it that people in the CIA, former intelligence officials, concocted this lie that it was Russian disinformation? Why did the corporate media unite to spread that lie? And then why did Facebook and Twitter, Facebook through a lifelong Democratic Party operative named Andy Stone, who used to work for Nancy Pelosi, why did they suppress the story? If nothing, if there was nothing on this laptop that mattered, if it was all so trivial, they certainly went to a very extreme length to try and hide something that made no difference. Mm. The president was just asked by Jackie Henrich of Fox News again today 
um, the following question. Did you lie about never speaking with Hunter about his business deals? Biden replied flatly, no. She followed up by asking, did you ever speak with Hunter about his business deals? It was unclear if the president responded as another reporter shouted a question toward Mr. Biden. He's going to continue denying it. And we're not going to get to the bottom of it without these House Republicans and ideally the media following up and publishing what the House Republicans find. How does the American people find out what these House Republicans are doing if it's not in the morning paper, if it's not in the morning news, if it's not in the evening news, if it's not all over social media? How do they learn about it? They they shouldn't have to work this hard to find out what's happening with the alleged corruption of our sitting commander in chief. Uh, much more to discuss with Glenn after this quick break. Glenn, let's talk for a minute about what just happened in Russia. It was crazy because I'm getting ready to come home on my flight from France, and it looks like there's civil war breaking out inside Russia. And, you know, I, I've interviewed Vladimir Putin three times. I was in Russia a couple times in the past few years. Um, I knew enough not to tweet. That's the best thing I can say for myself. But I think it's significant. I knew enough to keep my mouth shut and my thumbs quiet because who the hell knows, right? Like what exactly is happening? Who knows what's being fed to us? That's true and not true. Who's pulling the strings and all that stuff. So but I love the certainty with which so many people ran to Twitter to try to tell us exactly what was happening. And it always to a man would just confirm their priors. Right. Like I told you all along, he was going to he's going to go down and then we're going to win that war in Ukraine, whatever. It turns out before it had even really gotten started, this guy who used to be Putin's caterer, but has rose, has risen to prominence as the head of this sort of militia group that Putin has been controlling some twenty five thousand strong, the Wagner, like Wagner group. Um, this guy was ticked off and had taken a city and was marching towards Moscow and had quickly thereafter reached some sort of a deal with Putin that stood the whole thing down. So it was kind of over just as soon as it started. But what do you make of it and how people in the media reacted in the 36 hours it was alive? So anytime there's a war, each participant in the war uses propaganda, including lies in order to demoralize the other side, to sow confusion. This is every single government and every single war that's ever been fought has done that. The Ukrainian narrative immediately became, this shows that Vladimir Putin is an extremely weakened position. They were claiming that he was, and he and his associates were fleeing Moscow on private planes, trying to go to Kazakhstan or Turkey, in other words, they were creating the narrative that you would expect the Ukrainian government to create, which was that this shows that Russia was in complete turmoil, that the Russian leadership was in grave jeopardy and in grave peril. In almost record time, everybody in the corporate media who already is big cheerleaders for and boosters of the U.S. role in the, that proxy war started adopting that very same narrative, re, just retweeting unverified reports spreading all kinds of fake news. I did my program on Friday night. We li we go air, uh, we live we go live at 7 p.m. and it happened maybe an hour or two before my program. I was preparing my program. I didn't see much of it. I woke up Saturday morning to all these people demanding, complaining that I hadn't commented on it. 
as though it was somehow a proof that my position was wrong in opposing the U.S. war, the U.S. proxy war in, the, in Ukraine. And my view was this is an incredibly complex event. It's on the other side of the world. It's between very murky and sketchy people. And nobody should be opining definitively about what happened because nobody actually right. knows. And yet, as you say, the narrative they, they were endorsing, and you can see it all over Twitter, it went completely viral, were claims that turned out to be totally untrue. The idea that a 25,000-person mercenary group is going to be able to topple Vladimir Putin in Moscow, in the Kremlin, one of the most fortified cities on the planet, with an army of hundreds of thousands of people was laughable to begin with. And of course, the leader of the Wagner group knew that and immediately backed down because they gave him an alternative to go to Belarus and have exile there and not be charged. And his mercenary forces, who are mercenary forces, they don't want to die for a cause. They they want to make money, turned around and went back to Ukraine. But the irresponsibility and the recklessness with which the media spread these propagandistic claims shows, and this is really a problem, that the media is on the side of the United States government and Joe Biden when it comes to Ukraine, which is fine. They have the right to be that. But they'll just act like the Ukrainian government and thinking their role is to spread propaganda instead of trying to discern, to separate fact from fiction. I always laugh because every time they talk about regime change in Russia, they talk about the potential successor to Putin as though he's going to be Jed Bartlett you know, of the West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> like, hello, this guy, Yevgeny Prigozhin, not Jed Bartlett. Be careful. You don't know what you're getting. Um, so, yeah, they were disappointed once again. Jed Bartlett is not taking over as the new leader of Russia. We're still looking at Vladimir Putin. I've been in the Kremlin. It's a crazy place. It's actually quite beautiful. Um, it's it incredibly is. Moscow's secure. Beautiful. The Kremlin's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It's incredibly secure. My second thought in watching the whole thing unfold was, my God, Tara Reid has bad timing. What was she <laughs> of all times <laughs> to, to leave for Russia? This is not it. Uh, OK, let's move on because there's a lot to discuss. We've been on this subject of the media for a lot of this uh, conversation. Fox News made news this morning by announcing a new lineup in the wake of Tucker Carlson's departure. Well, he's not departed. He's still working there technically, but he's been booted off of his 8 p.m. show. And the backlash continues. The ratings remain in the toilet. The new lineup will be Laura Ingram moves from 10 p.m. to 7 p.m. Jesse Waters takes over at 8 p.m. He's currently at 7, which is kind of interesting because he used to be O'Reilly's producer running around doing confrontational videos when O'Reilly hosted the 8. Hannity stays at 9, so Drudge got that wrong. Greg Gutfeld moves from 11 to 10. And Trace Gallagher moves to the 11 o'clock news spot. So this is them saying they think Jesse Waters is the solution to winning back their audience that they lost when Tucker left. Do you agree? <laughs> no. And, I, you know, I, I like Jesse. I like Laura a lot. I'm friends with a lot of people over there. I've been on all their shows. I think the reality, though, is the following, which is that there is a obviously significant ideological split within the Republican Party, unlike anything in the Democratic Party, that Donald Trump first exposed when he ran against Reagan, uh, Bush, Cheney foreign policy and even Reagan economics. Tucker spent at least half of his show, if not more, not attacking Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, but attacking the GOP establishment. When Tucker was fired, the Republican establishment celebrated because they talked about how difficult he was making their life because they want to support the war in Ukraine. They want to support tax break for corporations. And Tucker started representing this populist strain of the ideology that the Murdochs most definitely do not support. And they removed somebody who was popular in part because he's so good at television, but also because 
he was espousing a different kind of ideology than Republican and, and conservative audience are accustomed to hearing. And that was obviously a big part of his appeal. And there is nobody else doing that over there. And, you know, Jesse and Laura are both kind of opposed to the war in Ukraine, but nowhere near the level that Tucker was articulating this alternative vision for what conservative politics should be that aligns more with Trump than any other politician. I think it's going to be almost impossible to replace. And because I think Fox's audience feels very betrayed, not just that Tucker was booted off, but was so unceremoniously and disrespectfully booted off. And then they got kind of went to war with Tucker. I think a lot of people lost faith in Fox News as an institution, and that faith isn't coming back no matter who you put there. I completely agree with everything you just said. It's just that they're forgive me, but they are rearranging the deck chairs. It's that's what's happening. It's it's going down. It's been going down for a long time. They took a massive risk in getting rid of their one unique draw. Again, with respect to those who are there, there was no one like Tucker and there won't be. I mean, he's just a unique voice in the American conversation. People resonate. It resonated with people, his message and continues to. They're following him now on Twitter, which is where he is temporarily while he fights Fox News. And now they're in court challenging his ability to do even that. Um, and the audience there, it's not just their anger over Tucker. It's just it's it's all of it. It's the disrespect that Fox has shown them. It's how Fox won't even explain itself. It hasn't had just the a basic modicum of decency in dealing with their number one star or their audience or their audience. And I mean, I hear from these people every day. They, they write into the show, they write on YouTube and they say how over they are. Fox News, the audience fled and it hasn't come back. Some went to Newsmax. The rest went online. I'm sure you're getting some. I'm getting some folks tuning into this show. They've discovered a new medium and a new way of of taking in the news, which was already a massive threat to Fox, even more so now. So moving Jesse to eight is not going to do it. Uh, good luck to them. Uh, OK, let's let's move on. The pride events. The name has become ironic. <laughs> There's nothing to be proud of when you see what is happening from Seattle to New York at these so-called pride events. Now, I have been around long enough and living in New York City for nearly two decades to know the pride events have typically been a little raunchy. It's not like they were always like attending the Queen's tea and now suddenly they've gone off the rails, but they've taken it next level, Glenn, next level. And before I show you what's happening in Seattle, I promised the audience this in my opening and I must tell you what I've seen in America in this videotape that's coming out right now in Seattle, in New York and so reminds me of what I saw in Saint-Tropez in, in the city of France. And let me walk in. It's a that's a country that loves nudity. It loves nudity, but it doesn't like show up in a parade. It just shows up on the beach. I'm going to give you one video. Brace yourselves at home, folks. This is on the beaches of Saint-Tropez, which is known as sort of as a part. Look at this man. Yeah. Oh, we, look, we've put a little white circle around his bottom, but it's like an overweight man, probably in his mid 70s, walking along the beach with it all hanging out. It's not just the old, I must point out, very weathered breasts that you see on the women. I mean, the breasts that the women choose to show have seen like 70 years of sunshine. It doesn't doesn't end well, ladies. Keep them undercover. OK, keep them undercover. It's always the naked man from head to toe. And it's always somebody you don't want to see. It's not like, you know, I don't know, Tom Brady running down the, you know, or like it's one of the guys from Baywatch running down. No, it's always somebody who's unattractive, overweight, who wants to show you his penis. <laughs> Which leads me to my first encounter with nudity in France, again in Saint-Tropez, Glenn, when Doug and I decided we would take a sauna and they said it was co-ed. So I knew, OK, I, I may potentially see men in there. Um, and I thought it might be fun to go in with Doug. Whatever. You never get to do that really here in the States that much. We walk into the sauna and I am telling you, full 
full frontal. There was <laughs> Abby's laughing. There was a man. He was probably 76 years old. I'm guessing I'm around there. I mean, totally naked. His penis was flayed out. It was flopped out on his leg. The, and then his wife, who was I mean, I, she had to be charitably like a size 29 or 30. I don't know. But every role, every every everything exposed. And Doug and I are trying to squeeze ourselves into the middle, being as like not close to anybody's genitals as we could possibly and trying not to make eye contact. Right. Thank you for the love of God. Get us out of here. You can't just walk out immediately. Like, I don't want to offend them. I'm not like naming them here. You know who you are. Um, but it was so uncomfortable. And that leads me to what's happening here in America, which is open penis showing at the pride parades like in Seattle. Here's the video for the listening audience. It's several men totally naked on bikes waving. Oh, they wear helmets, though. (laughs) They cover that head (laughs) waving. And this would be kind of funny if you didn't see many children in the other shots of the parade, Glenn. So what the hell is happening with pride? Yeah, you know, look, I mean, the gay and lesbian movement was an important part of my life. It's what enabled me to be legally married. It was something I supported for a long time. And the linchpin of it is something that not only I believe, but that most Americans ended up believing. There was a culture war consensus in the United States, and it was based on the principle that adults have the right to live their lives in whatever way they think will bring them the most self-actualization and that a healthy, decent society facilitates that freedom and doesn't impede it. And if you look at polling data in 2015, most Americans favored same-sex marriage, even young conservatives, and even people had no problem with trans adults. They thought trans people should have basic legal protections. They shouldn't be kicked out of their apartments. They shouldn't be fired from their jobs. All of that has unraveled because the LGBTQIA plus two movement or whatever acronym you prefer has basically waged a war on that principle. There were people chanting in the streets, we're coming from your, ch- we're coming for your children. The San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus sung a song that said, we're coming for your children. They want to indoctrinate people's children. They're claiming that you are required to get certain trans affirming treatment for your children if they identify as trans, even if you don't want them to, and that you could be deemed guilty of child abuse and have your children taken away if you don't. The whole movement has transformed from one We want to be left alone and live our lives the way we want to know. Actually, we want to control your lives, too, and make your kids think what we want them to think and even influence the way they grow up. And this has unraveled that consensus. And this is all part of it. This is a movement that was once a marginalized community in the United States, didn't have much power, had to hide, was genuinely persecuted. They now have every institution of power on their side. They know it. And it's become a bullying movement. And this idea that we're going to go out into the streets publicly in front of your kids and be fully naked and sexualize that nudity and you can't do anything about it is the mentality of a movement that believes, in this case, good re- with good reason, that they are now sort of the majority, that they have the power and they're using it in ways that are very self-destructive. Mm-hmm. And then the problem is, too, on top of the nudity, there's always like an element of bondage, some sort of sexual fetishization, something to take it next level for your child. It's like my kids were actually not with me in that video that I showed where we saw the naked man on the beach. That was the day we were with the Cardones. But um, 
like adding the intentional sexuality to it takes it next level and makes it more problematic than just having to catch a glimpse of a naked person. Neither is ideal for the young guys, but um, the, the second is even more so. You, you talk about the bullying. This video out of the New York City Pride event where an anti trans rights activator uh, activist, I don't want to call her that because it's really she's a pro woman's advocate. She's there standing up for women's rights. Um, she went in the middle of the, the belly of the beast with a sign. That's it. She wasn't looking. People like she was looking to get punched. No, she was not. She was trying to make her message heard at the very place where the, the, the protesters were. When Antifa shows up, when the parents are protesting out of a California school over inappropriate sexual content for children, does the left blame Antifa saying you shouldn't have showed up? No, they embrace them. But one person shows up at this pride thing where it's all about the trans movement. It's about not about LGB. Um, and look what happens to her. Watch this. Sot 15. You say bullying and I see the tolerant far left. Yeah, it makes me sick. You know, I mean, protest is a constitutional right in the United States. It's always been part of the fabric of the United States. I've never cared if, you know, people don't believe that the law should recognize same sex marriage. That's their right to believe it. All I care about is whether the law provides it. And this idea that it's not enough to have full legal protection, that you are now going to demand that everybody recite the pieties that you believe in, which is exactly what that is, that, you know, we can't accept the fact that there's even one person who doesn't disagree, who disagrees with our dogma and the cheering about that person getting beaten and attacked violently when they were peacefully protesting is the kind of mentality that, you know, does come from this idea that we're the ones who now have the power and we're not longer about getting equality for ourselves or winning the right for adults to live our lives freely. But instead, we're going to force you and your children to think the way that we want. And we will use force of every kind. If you don't, that's the part that's becoming extremely repellent to me. Mm, and the children, too. I mean, it's working because now we have an epidemic of children identifying as trans who are not trans, who are getting on board some social contagion as evidenced by the free press run by our friend Barry Weiss, um, sending a reporter out to an L.A. Pride event and caught a bit of this. Watch. I'm pansexual and non-binary. How old are you? Ten and a half. You're ten and a half? Yeah. <laughs> She's pretty confident. And, you'll, and you're pansexual? Yes. You'll go to bed with anyone? Yes. I'm pansexual. I'm pansexual. Why aren't you on the pansexual bandwagon? Why are you calling yourself bi? I think bisexual is sexier. Pride was once an act of transgression. Yeah, you get the, you the, get the gist, Glenn. So there you hear a 10-year-old who's pansexual, doesn't even know what that means, I guarantee, and uh, of course is also trans. I mean, obviously it has become the source of pride for liberal parents to be able to show off their kids and have this kind of identity that they get to prove to their friends they're supportive of it's kind of like this social status and at the same time the gold standard in the united states is victimhood is marginalized identity so you have all these people 
who have none, who just invent it and who are encouraging their kids at an extremely young age to do so. That is demented, Megan. It really is. And it has nothing to do with the original movement on which on whose backs they claim to be building. It's the exact opposite. The ethos was autonomy for adults, not indoctrination for children. Absolutely. Uh, It's disgusting what they've done. And it's great to see so many voices. Uh, in the LGB community, starting to speak out more about this nonsense. It's great to see you, Glenn Greenwald. All the best to you. Thanks for being with us today. Always a pleasure, Megan. Thank you. Want to tell our friends from Ruthless, join us tomorrow. Look forward to speaking to you all then. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.